Chapter 1, and uh, put one finger there, and then also we'll be reading in chapter 27. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 27. If you're with us here today and you don't have a Bible, there are some men coming up the aisles right now. They've got lots of Bibles. Just wave to them, get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands, and that way you can... Not only listen to the sermon, but follow along with your own eyes and uh, enjoy yourself even more thoroughly in God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. A miracle of God. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, two verses, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice from the cross, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let's pray together. Father, we want you to know, those of us who know you and many of us have known you for long decades, we never tire of this account. We never tire of reading about every aspect of our Savior. Lord, the miracle of His conception, the wonder of His being born into this world, and then everything about His life and all that His life has produced for us, Lord. And we pray that as we study Your Word this morning and the true meaning of Christmas, that each of us will be refreshed and filled with a fresh awe for what it is that you have done for us in your Son. And we pray, Lord, for each person that stands before you that hasn't yet entered into the true meaning of Christmas, they haven't yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, you know how to break through and give us understanding of your will for our lives and the reasons for what you do, and we pray that this morning you would speak to their heart and to their mind that things that have never made sense to them before would make sense and they would be, uh, begin that relationship with you with a glad surrender this morning 
and putting their faith in the Savior that you've sent. And so we look to you for that work of your Spirit in this room this morning. We're glad that our prayers make a difference. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And normally, on the Sunday before Christmas, that's a Sunday morning that's set aside to talk about Jesus' birth, the birth of a Savior uh, into the world. And so that morning is typically dedicated to that. And, um, but I'm going to continue with where we've uh, been in the Scriptures and, and stay all the way here in Matthew chapter 27 where Jesus is on the cross and all of the events surrounding his death upon the cross because I think you can hardly find in all of the scriptures a better Christmas text or message than the one that we naturally come to this morning because Jesus was not only born into the world but he was born into the world so that he would die. And he was born into this world to die for a very specific reason. While on the cross, Jesus made seven great statements that he spoke or he cried out during those six hours in which he was alive uh, while hanging on the cross. Only one of the seven takes the form of a question. Only one of the seven Ask the question, why? And that's the question that we see in verse 46 of chapter 27, where he raises the question, why? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I want to answer that question this morning and in the context of two other whys, why questions, and the three why questions are as followed. Why was Jesus born into the world? Why the darkness at the scene of his crucifixion? And why was Jesus forsaken by the Father as he hung upon the cross? We begin with why was Jesus born into the world? And it's a very, very important question. If I don't understand why he was born into the world, why he was introduced into human history the way that he was... I have absolutely no hope of understanding what he is about. Uh, if you come to me and you say, listen, Jesus was born into the world almost 2,000 years ago, and you need to put your faith in him in order to uh, become a Christian and become his follower, and you don't tell me why he came into the world, I'm not going to, I'm just... Simply the way that God has made me, I'm not going to track with you. It's going to be like, why would I believe in Him over anybody else if you, don't, you can't even tell me why He came into the world? What was He hoping to accomplish? And so He comes into this world and He lives this sinless life and all of these miracles and the marvels of His teaching and all. But all of those things He didn't just do to do. He did all of those things in order to drive home a single great point concerning his life and what his life was all about and why he came into the world. And the single greatest reason that Jesus came into the world was to save us, to save people from their sins. Again, Matthew chapter 1. And she shall bring forth a son 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now there's a lot of talk today. It was a little more common in churches a few years ago, but it's still pretty common. It's very common in business environments or, uh, you know, civic clubs or whatever it might be to adopt a mission statement. And a mission statement merely explains uh, the purpose for which this business or this church or this civic organization uh, exists. And so this is their purpose. This is what they're trying to accomplish. And they will work mightily to reduce that mission statement down into just one sentence. And, and so they'll repeat it over and over and over again so that when that business or when that uh, civic organization or when that church is tempted to drift away from the very reason that it came into existence. It can always go back to its mission statement, be reminded of why it exists, and go back to that why and back to that, that beginning. It helps them to keep the main thing the main thing. And here we have heaven's mission statement concerning Jesus. He came to save sinners from their sin. He must never be reduced to merely a great teacher, a great prophet, a great miracle worker, a great uh, human example in, in human history. We must not do to hit that to Him. And God, it seems, is very determined not to let anyone do that to Him because right from the beginning, even before He's born, God wants the fact that He came into the world to save sinners to be at the forefront of our mind when we think of Him. It's amazing how we talk about Jesus as the reason for the season and all of these. It's amazing how Christmas despite all of God's effort to make it very, very clear what this birth is about, how it has become about so many other things. But there's no reason for lacking clarity as to why Jesus came into the world. In fact, His very name declares His mission. His name, Jesus, is a contraction of the name Yeshua. Yeshua is a contraction of the name Jehovah Shua. All three names mean Jehovah is salvation. God named Jesus in such a way that every single time His name is used, it is communicating the single great reason that He came into the world, and that is to provide us with salvation. There's no reason for anyone to lack a complete clarity concerning the reason He came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners from their sins. Well, that raises another question, not for everyone, because some people know the Bible better than others, and some people don't know anything about the Bible. But it raises the question, what then is sin? He's come to save sinners from their sin. And so it raises the question, what is sin? Sin essentially is to miss the mark. It is to be less than perfect. The Bible teaches that perfection is the standard. And because perfection is the standard for heaven, every single one of us has lived short of that standard, and thus we are a sinner. The Bible says, all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. Some people are very offended when they're called a sinner or they find out that God's assessment of them is, a, is that they're a sinner. And they tend to think that as long as we, are, we live slightly better than the neighbor on the right and on the left and across the street, that we're not a sinner. And they kind of think that this whole thing is graded on kind of an average thing. you just got to be a little bit better than most other people and then you're not a sinner. But that's not how God views, uh, defines sin or uh, identifies a sinner. There's no need for offense when we realize that everyone is a sinner who's been less than perfect. And all of us have been less than perfect. We've been less than perfect in our thought life. We've been less than perfect in our actions in the course of our life. We've been less than perfect in how we use this instrument called the tongue and the mouth. We've been less than perfect in our motives. We've been less than perfect not only in things that we did but we shouldn't have done, but we've been less than perfect in what the Bible calls the sin of omission, things that we should have done but we didn't do where there was a need that we just bypassed and we knew clearly we should have been a part of meeting that need. All of us have sinned. There's not a single one of us who can come to the end of a day. Not only are we sinners in the course of our lifetime, every one of us is a sinner every single day. So how do, unless we recognize that, how are we going to recognize our need for a Savior? What's He going to save us from? There's not a single one of us that lays our head down on our little comfy pillow, however we prop it around and move it around to be able to fall asleep at night, we lay our head on the pillow and we say, God, I wish I could confess a sin to you today, but in all of my thought life, in all of my motives, in all of my attitudes, in all of my actions, and in all of the words that came out of my mouth, I was exactly like Jesus. And so we'll try it again tomorrow and maybe I'll have something to confess. Now, every day we fall short of that standard. Every day we prove God's assessment of us to be true, and that is that we are sinners. Each and every one of us, there is none righteous, no, not one, when we understand that the standard is perfection. Against that standard, we all fail. Now, the big problem with me being a sinner is not just that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, But there are consequences associated with that. But we'll speak about that in just a little bit. But first let me move on to why the darkness at the scene of Jesus' crucifixion here in verse 45 of, of Matthew chapter 27. In verse 45, mention is deliberately made of the fact that at the scene of Jesus' crucifixion and his death, there, uh, there was deliberately the entire scene was shrouded with darkness from the sixth hour, that is noon until three. He was on the cross before he gave up his spirit from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. But at noon, uh, the brightest part of the day, this is a bright spring day, noon to three, the brightest part of the day, in that part of the day, the entire scene gets shrouded with a supernatural darkness. What were the reasons for the darkness? There's no indication in the account that Jesus is the source of the miracle. It appears that God the Father was the source of of this miracle. First and foremost, I believe that the darkness was a Heavenly Father's revelation 
of the condition of his heart as he watched men do what man did to his son in crucifying him 2,000 years ago so that we would have a revelation of what he was going through, what he was feeling as, as he witnessed all of this. Darkness, of course, is the color of mourning. Nobody wears bright colors to a funeral. It's, a, it's darkness that, and, and dark colors that are associated with mourning. And he wanted the whole world to know uh, the impact that what he was witnessing was having upon his own heart and his own mind, so to speak. I believe that the most neglected person at the site of Jesus' crucifixion, the most overlooked person present at that scene is God the Father. And He makes His presence known through this miracle. Of course, we're very aware of Jesus' presence because He is on the cross. The detail of what He was going through and and all is, is there in all of the Gospels for us. So, of course, we're very conscious of His place in this day in human history. But here in this giving of the, the darkness, here it was the Father watching this crucifixion of His Son on that day as well and communicating just how He saw it and what He felt about it. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11 tells us as much where we're told, He, that is the Father, He shall see the travail of His soul. That is the soul of the Messiah, of Jesus on the cross. He shall see the travail of His soul and be satisfied by His knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. It was a father's son who hung on that cross 2,000 years ago. And the Bible reminds us repeatedly that that son was a beloved son of the Father. When Jesus was water baptized by John the baptizer, the Holy Spirit came down upon him as he began his public ministry. The Father declared as he began that public ministry, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My beloved son. Jesus was and is loved by the Father. Later on, when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and Peter's going on and on about stuff he shouldn't be going on and on about, and the Father interrupts him in that scene and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And then I think about one of Paul's sentences that he wrote by the Spirit of God to the church at Colossae. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, this vein concerning the love of the Father for the Son. And Paul wrote and said, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It was a loving Father who watched what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. And He made His presence known by shrouding the scene of His Son's crucifixion with darkness. I think that surely the darkness speaks to the shame of the entire scene in the same way that if you go into a hospital and so often they'll pull a curtain around a patient so that he can or she can have some semblance of privacy while they're in the midst of their suffering. Uh, 
And so too the Father provided Jesus with some semblance of privacy by means of this darkness in the midst of the shame of a blood-covered and a spit-covered and nearly naked Son of God hanging upon that cross. And surely this darkness speaks also of the darkness of the human heart, that we have this kind of capacity within our heart to crucify, to kill the very Son of God, to rid ourselves in our former condition before becoming a Christian of the message that He brings to convict us of sin and to bring us to salvation. And it's inside of all of us from Adam and Eve. You look at this Jesus on that cross and it is the single worst event that has occurred in all of human history that the creation would do that to the Creator. The single greatest act of injustice. The Bible teaches that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And never was the wickedness of the human heart and the deceitfulness of it, its capacity to lie to itself. Never was that more on display than in the crucifying of the Lord Jesus. And surely the darkness speaks of the tremendous spiritual assault that Jesus endured on the cross by the demonic realm and by the devil himself. There they were at the, in the scene of the cross and they were able to witness the great um, uh, suffering that he was going through in a physical sense, uh, the mocking, the blasphemies, the reviling, what was impacting his mind and impacting his heart. But what none of those people that were on that scene could see was happening in the invisible realm. And that was the great attack and the fullness of the attack of the devil against Jesus while he hung there upon the cross. I can't even imagine what it must have been like. Paul hinted at it in his letter again to the Colossians where he described the cross as a place where Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. Jesus took on that realm. While all of this other is going on, that realm was taken on in the unseen realm as well. And it was there that he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it, Paul said. And so we think about how Satan used Judas to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told as God spoke to Satan and declared that he would be given room one day to bruise the heel of the Messiah, to bruise Jesus' heel here in the scene of the cross. And Satan was at work mightily against Jesus as he hung upon that cross. And I think finally, surely, this darkness speaks to the fact that while on that cross, Jesus bore our sins, and He bore the sins of the whole world, which brings us to our final why, and that is why was Jesus forsaken by the Father? You notice again there in verse 46, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And people look at that word forsaken, and we should. We look at that word forsaken. And as Jesus declares himself forsaken by the Father there, we wonder what in the world is this? Exactly what 
was this forsaking? And people head into all kinds of speculations related to this. And what kind of confuses their mind a little bit is in terms of what this is, is how in the world could a forsaking take place between God the Father and God the Son? How could there be any separation, any forsaking occur within the perfect unity of the Godhead, of the triunity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? How could there be a forsaking in the midst of all of that? And I readily admit I don't understand all of it. And I don't have a problem understanding all of it. I don't think that everything that is written in the Word is something that can be fully understood. I think it can be understood to a degree. And from there it's intended to produce worship and awe in us. Anytime you have the finite us in a relationship with the infinite God, you're going to have to get used to mystery. We can only track with God so far on any subject that He wants to bring up. I only know that some disturbance, some forsaking occurred within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which had never occurred, not only in human history before, but ever in all of eternity, and will never occur again in all of human history, and will never occur in eternity off into the future. This is an event that was a one-time event associated with that cross. And what was the reason for this forsaking? Why the forsaking? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that it was because while Jesus hung on that cross, that He that is the Father made Him who is Jesus to become sin. He who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I cannot imagine what it would be like to bear all the sins of the world. When I came to Christ, I could hardly bear my own sin. The wrong I had done to others the things I had done, the things that I had said. I wasn't notorious in a comparison to much of the world. But I lived far lower than I wanted to live and I lived far lower than my conscience. And I was guilty of my sin and I wanted to be released from the guilt of my sin. And it was one of the reasons that I came to Christ among many other reasons. Imagine having all of the sins of human history laid upon you of billions and billions and billions of people. All of the crime, all of the things that are said in private, all of the things that are said openly, all of the wars, all of the horrors of human history, all of the big sins, all of the small sins, all of the public sins, all of the private sins, all of the sins of everyone throughout history laid upon you. And on that cross, Jesus bore the sins of all of us. Again, Isaiah wrote and said, All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'll tell you, my sin would have been enough. Your sin on top of it. But that's a lot of sin that Jesus bore upon that cross. Absolutely perfect holiness and sinlessness becoming sin on that day in order to provide us with salvation. You think about that. There are things in this world that I get exposed to, not on purpose. And I think to myself, I wish that never got into my eyes. I, never, I wish that never got past my ear gate. I wish that, was, that never became a part of my mind or part of my heart. Because I, I don't want to be affected by that sin. And to think about having all of the sins of the whole world being laid upon the sinless one. And when Jesus bore our sin, the Father was forced to forsake Him in some indescribable, never-to-be-repeated way. And you notice when Jesus cried out that, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It wasn't a whisper. It wasn't a case of people saying, did, did you hear him say something? It's very clear, and God wants it to be very clear, that he cried this out with a loud voice. And I can never think about this cry of Jesus on the cross without thinking about his loneliness there on the cross. A terrible loneliness. Again, indescribable loneliness. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, the Jews. At this point in time, while he's on the cross, his disciples have scattered in 11 different directions out of fear for their own safety. He's surrounded by people who hate him and are blaspheming all around. And then now the Father has been forced to forsake him. And that's why I always read it in my mind. My God, my God, and the emphasis is on why hast thou forsaken me? And when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before this, Father, if there be any way... Let this cup pass from me. And he prayed it repeatedly to the Father during that night. He was not asking for the cup to be taken away from him of the physical suffering and all that the torment that he went through on the physical realm. He was looking for this disruption, this forsaking. If there's any other way for man to be saved that will not mean this disruption of some kind in our relationship, then let this pass, this cup pass from me. And here is this, this painful aloneness, again, holy and unknowable to anyone outside of the Godhead, some disruption of the fullness of the fellowship between God the Father and God the Son produced that cry. My sin was behind that cry. And I'm humbled by it. You ever wonder what God the Father's answer was to Jesus' question on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you search the Gospels for the Father's answer to the question, 
And you don't find an answer there. There's no revelation for us there. And the reason that they don't give us revelation is because the answer, the revelation, had already been given by the Holy Spirit to King David a thousand years before Jesus was born in a psalm, a well-known psalm, called Psalm 22. And Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? comes from Psalm 22. It is the very first verse of Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, next to Isaiah 53 and the actual accounts of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels, Psalm 22, next to those, is the most graphic description of the crucifixion of Jesus to be found in the entire Bible. Psalm 22, 1 reads, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? The question is posed by the Messiah. And then in Psalm 22, the Father answers the question. And you might turn to Psalm 22 if you're so inclined. In Psalm 22, it declares that Jesus was forsaken because of the holiness of God. After he cries out in verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In verse 3 of Psalm 22 is the answer, But you, speaking to the Father, are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In bearing our sin, the Father had to turn away judicially from Jesus. All of the judgment that my sin deserved, all of the eternity of hell that my sin deserved, all of the righteous wrath of God that my sin deserved and indeed the sins of the whole world deserved was compressed into three hours and placed upon Jesus as He hung on that cross. The cross glorifies the holiness of God. And the holiness of God needs to be glorified in this fallen world. God faced a very significant dilemma in His desire to save sinners. The problem that He faced is that the only righteousness, the only rightness, the only right-onness that is acceptable in heaven because of the holiness of heaven is perfection. And God cannot lower that standard or He would not be a righteous God. And we would not want Him to lower that standard. The world is already fallen. It's already mocked and dominated by sin. I tell you, as God is my witness, I would forsake my salvation. I would rather not be saved than for heaven to become like this world if that's what was required for me to be saved. I want God to be holy. I want Him to be awesome. I want Him to be different from this world. I want Him to be different from me. That's the God I searched for all of my life, and that's the God I fell in love with when I found Him to be the God of the Bible. I don't want Him to be a bigger version of myself. I'm not interested in that. I was happy to discover a holy God 
in the God of the Bible. But He still wants to save us. So how does a God who's that holy save sinful man? Without lowering the standard at the expense of His righteousness and His holiness. The problem God declares that each of us is guilty of sin, each of us less than perfect, each of us has broken God's laws, thus we're disqualified from getting into heaven based upon our own human effort. Again, Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that there is a penalty that must be paid for sin. This universe is not man's universe. This world is not man's world. It's God's universe. It's God's world. He created it, and it belongs to Him. And just as there are penalties for breaking the law in a city or in a state or in a nation, there is a penalty in this universe for violating God's laws. And because God is perfectly holy and just, every violation of His law, that is, every sin, must be punished. If He did not punish those who break His laws, if He just kind of casually overlooked it and became accepting of sin and tolerated sin, then He can't be just or He can't be holy. And just as you would never want to live in a city or in a state or in a nation that, number one, did not have laws, and number two, did not enforce those laws with penalties for violating those, those laws, the same thing is true of the universe. God has laws. He enforces them. He would not be just or holy if He didn't. Sin has ruined the world, and He won't let sin ruin heaven. This is maybe the biggest thing. Sometimes people I know, you, know, you sit and you listen and say, Why? it's Christmas time. Why is he going to go on and on about this thing? If you don't understand this, then again, you don't, know, you don't recognize your need to be saved. And the nation that we live in is progressively, and it's true not just of us, but it's true of the whole world. There is a lessening of a seriousness about wrongdoing. Lawlessness is beginning to prevail in this world. It is increasing dramatically and alarmingly and in our nation, overlooked by the government, overlooked by the citizens, overlooked by individuals. And so the crazy thing that happens in our life is then we come to God and we live in a culture that doesn't make a big deal out of sin anymore or, and less and less a big deal out of wrongdoing. And we begin to think that God ought to be that way. And why isn't God more like us? Why is He such a stickler on this? Why does He have to be so high? And why does He have to be so, so holy? And we begin to think that we're the smart ones and He's the one that's out of touch instead of realizing we live in the insane asylum and He's the only sane one in the universe. This is His universe. He makes note of every sin. 
And he must, because he's just and holy, he must judge that sin. He must act against it. Now the solution to God's dilemma, and there was only one solution, he was able to do this through Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary. Because it's there that God provided a way for Jesus' righteousness, His perfect righteousness, to be imputed to us as we put our faith in Him as our Savior. And here's how God does it. As we trust in Jesus as our Savior, Jesus' perfect righteousness is then imputed to us or put to our account so that when God sees us, He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness that's required by heaven. And yet at the same time, he does it in a way that does not dismiss or ignore the seriousness of our sin. No one can look at the cross of Christ. No one can look at that bloody mess that he was. Nobody can look at what he went through. Nobody can listen to the blasphemies. Nobody can listen to him cry out related to his loneliness on that cross, and ever come to the conclusion that the salvation that's found in Christ minimizes the seriousness of sin. It makes us understand just how serious sin is, but it gives us a way of salvation. And there is no other place for justice and mercy to kiss than that cross and for us to be saved. And it's only through faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sin that allows a perfectly holy God to save ungodly sinners and remain just in doing so. And we need both. I need a holy and a just God. That's the God I want. But I want to be saved too. And only in Christ has He been able to provide both of those things to us. In Psalm 32, Psalm 22 goes on to further declare that Jesus was forsaken in order to provide salvation for the Jew. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren, the Messiah said, the Jews. Psalm 22 declares that Jesus was forsaken in order to provide salvation for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world. And verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. Psalm 22 also declares that he was forsaken in order to provide salvation for future generations, those who were yet to be born following Jesus' death. In verses 30 and 31, a posterity shall serve him. It shall be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. And they will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He, that is the Messiah, has done this. In other words, God's offer of salvation reaches all the way down through human history and right into this room this morning. Why was Jesus born into the world? To save us from our sins. To provide us with salvation. And He was born to this world to pay an unimaginable price on that cross in order to provide us with 
that forgiveness and that salvation. So how do I receive the gift? It's the gift that God wants to give. God loves you. God cares about you. So what would it be if he provided a gift but never told us how we could receive it into our lives? But he's provided the gift and he's told us how to receive it. You have to huff and puff and blow that house down. You have to climb on your hands and knees to the top of the Himalayas and back down again. That's a, that's a lot easier than that. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift. For God so loved the world, He gave. That's a gift word. His only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here's how you receive the gift. By putting your trust and your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. By repenting. And when you're a sinner in this world, in this fallen world, the only way you can turn to God is to repent (laughs) of our selfishness, of our sin, of our self-will, all of these things. It means I'm willing to give all of that up now to turn to God and then to put my trust and my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, that that is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases God and is acceptable to God. And then to give my life to God. And when a person does that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we're born again by the Holy Spirit and begin a personal relationship with God having received forgiveness and everlasting life. And it's all there for simply asking and receiving. And He made it a gift because people like you and me and that's everybody, we can't earn it. We can't begin to earn it. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to receive that gift of salvation this morning. You might say to yourself, well, how in the world do I know I can trust this? I mean, I've burned, burned all my life on promises and different things. How, can, how do I know that this is true, that God promises this and it will be true in my life? Because he's already demonstrated the greatness of his love toward you in the sending of his son to die on that cross. The Bible says God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Why would Jesus, the very Son of God, come into this world and endure all of that shame and the humiliation and the blasphemies and the abuse and the forsaking and the loneliness? You take all of that and you pile it over on one side of the scale over here and you think, my, nothing could outweigh all of that and yet there is something weightier still in eternity that outweighs all of it and it is the love of God that you place on the other side of the scale. The love that God has for you, individually and personally, and the concern that He has for your soul. You know, one of the most sobering things that happens to a person once they become a Christian is we look back and we realize how many times God miraculously kept us alive for the day that we would accept His Savior and His salvation. 
and, and to look back upon our lives and to realize how long He valued our souls. For long years and decades, we cared nothing, some of us, about our souls, and He cared about our souls every single day and kept speaking to us to lead us to Christ and to lead us to salvation. He loves us and He cares about our souls. And He wants to save every human being in this world. But that's the narrow way and that's the true way by which it occurs through faith in His Son. Don't take the love of God for granted Sometimes I run into people, and I'm closing with this. Sometimes I run into people, they, they don't take the day that they've been given, the only day we can be sure of, the day that we have right now to accept Christ into their life. And you talk with them, and they're living lives very, very far away from God. You say, what about your souls? What about salvation? What about getting right with God? What about, what about, oh, I believe that He is a loving God. And they, and they find a refuge in His love and they think that that love is going to negate a lifelong rejection of the Son of God for salvation. And you must never, ever put yourself in that place. Don't take his love this morning for granted. Don't leave this life unsaved. Because if you leave this life unsaved, that is a sin and an affront to both the Father and the Son that ultimately puts you beyond even the reach of God's love. Eternities hang in the balance. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. And today's the day, this Christmas season, to choose life and to choose salvation, to choose heaven and to choose the Savior that God sent into the world. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning with hearts where it is impossible to communicate with mere words what we feel toward you, the awe that we feel, the love that we feel, the gratitude that we feel for sending your Son into the this sinful world. We're amazed that you would even bring him into this fallen situation. But then as the Apostle Paul said, not only to be born into this world and not only to die, but to die the death of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that how you valued our soul long before we ever valued our soul Thank you for our Savior today. Thank you for the salvation that you paid such a high price for in order to provide it to us, Lord. 
We thank you for our relationship with you. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for the confidence of heaven, Lord. We thank you for the new thing that you've begun in our lives. We thank you for progressive Christ-likeness. We thank you for this gift that just keeps on giving, Lord. We give you praise today as your children for how good you've been to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, during this Christmas season for our Savior. We're humbled, Lord, by your gift. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.